Well, thank you, Mike, for praying and reading the scriptures for us. And thank you, Jason. Very good job, brother. Very God-honoring. Very gospel-centered. Um, highlighting your own sinfulness and declaring God's grace and saving you. Praise God for your testimony, for your salvation, and for uh, the life that God will use uh, for His glory. I look forward to see God use you in a manifold ways for the building up of the saints. first met Jason maybe 11 months ago at a wedding, and we had a brief time of fellowship at the reception. And to think that 11 months later we'll be ministering in the same church. Well, God's sovereignty and providence is at work, and for that... We are thankful and grateful to him. Well, we are stuck in John 12 again. And we'll be, I guess, here for a few more weeks. I just can't move on. You know, I, I had no idea entering John 12 that it would be such a heart-transforming, uh, heart, life, gut-wrenching study as it has been and for that, um, I am thankful to the Lord that God's Word has gripped my heart and is molding me as I study. And I pray that it's Sunday mornings as we study together that the Holy Spirit is doing the same work in your heart as we come to grips with God's passion for His own glory. I want to I start this morning by asking you a simple question. I'll ask you a simple question. What is your dream what do you consider your dream life in terms of your life here in America your career your future what are your aspirations what are your goals what are your hopes to sum it up what is your dream for many men and women today living in this culture and society their highest dream is the American dream of fame, fortune, and family. Fame, fortune, and family. The three pillars of the American dream. A man named Pat Tillman was living this American dream. Um, he was a football player, 5 foot 11, 200 pounds. He was distinguished by his intelligence and appetite for rugged play. He was an undersized linebacker at Arizona State. And in 1997, he was Pac-10's defensive player of the year. He set a franchise record for the Arizona Cardinals in the year 2000 with 224 tackles. In 2001, he warmed up for the year's training camp by competing in a triathlon in June. In college, he carried a 3.84 grade point average. He graduated with honors in marketing in three and a half years. And he was drafted by the Cardinals and he played four seasons and earned many millions of dollars. Then in 2002, Pat Tillman turned down a $3.6 million contract offer from the Cardinals. He turned that down to join the Army Special Forces in the wake of September 11, 2001, terrorist attacks. When he signed up for the army, he said this, My great-grandfather was at Pearl Harbor, and a lot of my family has gone and fought in wars. 
And I really haven't done a damn thing as far as laying myself in a line like that. And he went off and joined the special forces. Former Cardinals head coach Dave McGinnis said that he felt tremendous pride in Pat Tillman, who represented, quote, all that was good in sports. He continues, he continued, Pat knew his purpose in life. He proudly walked away from a career in football to a greater calling, end quote. With his younger brother Kevin, he joined the Army. Pat Tillman denied requests for media coverage of his enlistment, basic training, and ultimate deployments. According to Army officials at the time, he wanted no special treatment, wanted no special attention. He wanted to be considered just one of the soldiers doing his duty for his country. Tillman's agent, Frank Bauer, has called him a deep and clear thinker who never valued material things. He gave up a multi-million dollar contract to play football, a dream job for many in this country. He gave up fame, fortune, the total package. Why? For the honor of his country. And this past Thursday, Pat Tillman was killed in action in Afghanistan. At the age of 27, he was a member of the 2nd Battalion, 75th Ranger Regiment. They were involved in an Operation Mountain Storm in southeastern Afghanistan, a U.S. campaign against fighters of the Al-Qaeda network and the former Taliban government. U.S. military spokesman Lieutenant Colonel Matthew Breavers said Saturday that Tillman was killed Thursday night in a firefight at about 7 p.m. on a road near Spira, about 25 miles southwest of a U.S. base at Kost. After coming under fire, Tillman's patrol got out of their vehicles and gave chase, moving toward the spot of the ambush. The fighting was sustained and lasted 15 to 20 minutes and Tillman was killed by enemy fire. He gave up not just his career, not just million dollars, not just his American dream. He gave his life in honor of his country. When I heard this Friday morning, I thought to myself, Pat Tillman is an indictment against all Christians living in America who are pursuing not the glory of Christ, but instead are pursuing the American dream. His life and death is an indictment against all Christians living in comfort and ease, pursuing their own dreams for their own honor instead of the dream of honoring Christ above all things. I ask myself, where are the Pat Tillmans for Christ? Where are the men and women who will give up their careers and their jobs for the honor of Christ in the world? Where are the Pat Tillmans who will lay down their lives because they cherish and treasure Christ? Because they seek to exalt the name of God? Because they want to proclaim by their lives how much they love God, how much they love the glory of Christ. This past week I read portions of missionary Adoniram Judson's biography. I asked myself, where are the Christian men and women 
like missionary Adoniram Judson. He was a missionary to Burma. He knew that his life, he knew that his life was a life that he was about to embrace would not only be dangerous and dirty, but also distant. When he left for Burma, he never expected to come back to, the, to America. He was in love with Miss Anne Hazeltine. He wrote a letter to her dad asking for her hand in marriage. Now, most, most men, when they talk to, their, talk to a girl, talk to a girl's father, they promise to provide and care for, the, for her. They promise her, promise her dad, I'll give her an easy life. I'll give her all the comforts and luxuries of this world. I'll give her the world in a silver platter. Well, not Adoniram Judson. Listen to the letter that he wrote to her dad. He wrote, I have now to ask whether you can consent to part with your daughter early next spring to see her no more in this world. Whether you can consent to her departure and subject her to hardships and sufferings of missionary life. I want to ask you whether you can consent to her exposure to the dangers of the ocean, to the fatal influence of the southern climate of India, to every kind of lack and distress, to degradation, to insult, persecution, and perhaps a violent death. Can you consent to all this for the sake of Him who left His heavenly home and died for her and for you? For the sake of perishing immortal souls, for the sake of Zion and the glory of God, can you consent to all this in hope of soon meeting your daughter in the world of glory with the crown of righteousness, brightened with the acclamations of praise which shall be given to her Savior from a heathen saved through her means from eternal woe and despair? Can you consent to all of this? He was telling her, Father, I have nothing but difficulties and trials and pain that I can offer to her as a missionary to the lost. Can you consent to give her hand in marriage to me? Her father let her decide. And she said yes. Where are the modern day Adoniram Judsons who will run to suffering and call others who will call those he loves to suffer with him like a good soldier of Jesus Christ? Are there any modern day Adoniram Judsons in Cornerstone today? I want to ask you, what is your dream today? What are you living for? Because what you are living for, you will die for. You are living and dying for your dream. And let me warn you today that if your dream is not centered on the glory of God, and the glory of God being declared among all the nations, your dream will not give you joy and happiness. Your dream, when realized, will not bring you happiness or satisfaction. At the end of your life, you will find it hollow, meaningless, and bankrupt. You will say to yourself, at the end of your life, lying on your deathbeds, I lived and gave my life for this. 
I gave my life for money, for a car, for a house, for a 401k retirement. That's what I lived and died for. And you will find you will have no joy. J. Campbell White wrote, quote, Most men are not satisfied with the permanent output of their lives. Nothing can wholly satisfy the life of Christ within His followers except the adoption of Christ's purpose toward the world He came to redeem. Fame, pleasure, and riches are but husks and ashes in contrast with the boundless and abiding joy of working for God for the fulfillment of His eternal plans. The men who are putting everything into Christ's undertaking are getting out of life its sweetest and most precious rewards. The call of Christ makes the largest possible demands upon men. It strives simply to voice to them God's call for a life whose dominant purpose is to establish the reign of Christ in all men. It reminds them that selfishness is suicidal, while service of others brings to the soul the supremest possible satisfaction. J. Campbell White, he's right. He is true. Any dream apart from Christ is hollow and bankrupt, will not satisfy your souls, then what is a worthy dream? What is an aspiration that will satisfy our souls? What should be the dream of every single Christian? Our dream should be the fulfillment of Christ's prophecy in John twelve thirty two. When we read 12.32, we should stop, gaze, and say to ourselves, that's my dream. That's what I want to live for. That's what I want to die for. And by dying for it, I want the world to know that I cherish Christ above all things. Our passion in life, our highest, our noblest aim and ambition in life, ought to be, must be, The realization of our Lord's words in verse 32. I believe this one passion, this one dream will give us true satisfaction. Why? Because it results in the lifting up of God's name among the peoples of the world. Because it results in the enjoyment of God's glory by people throughout this earth. Remember John 12? Our Lord had entered triumphantly to Jerusalem. Throngs of people are gathered around Him, declaring Him, Hosanna, save us now. Blessed is He who comes in the name of the Lord. It seems that the masses are submitting themselves to His role as the promised Messiah of the Old Testament. He comes in riding on a donkey. And people are rejoicing. But our Lord knows that these people are fickle. That their hearts are far away. Their affirmation and their profession of loyalty is external. The Greeks come to Him. And 
it's not recorded what question they ask, but it's obvious by the response that they're asking about following Christ. And he turns to himself and he says in verse 27, as he considers himself dying on the cross for the sins of man, he says to himself, My father, my soul is troubled, what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. No, it's for this hour I have come. It tells us that our Lord's motivation for going to the cross was for the glory of God's name. Because he says in verse 28, Father, glorify your name. That his passion, his desire, was that God's name be exalted among the people. And then we hear the response of God the Father. He cannot contain himself. He has audibly responded only three times in the life and ministry of Christ. In his baptism, in his transfiguration, and the last time here in John 12, 28, second part of verse 28, God responds, I have glorified it and I will glorify it again. Revealing to us in our last week's jugular study, I mean our last week's, we plumbed the depths of the heart of God and we discovered that God is passionate for his own glory. That God does all things for the glory of His name. Our Lord's response is found in verse 31. Now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. The question is, what does this mean? Judgment of this world. Greek word is crisis. It can mean condemnation. It can mean also decision, a reordering. I believe the second meaning is preferred. Because Christ said in John 12, 47, a few verses down, we'll study this in weeks to come, that He did not come to judge. Our Lord's first incarnation, the purpose was not to condemn. Luke 19, 10, Christ came to seek and to save that which was lost. He came to Jerusalem riding on a donkey as a mediator to reconcile this rebellion, rebellious word to God the Father. That was the purpose of His incarnation. He did not come to judge. He came to save. The second coming of Jesus, He will come to judge. He will come to reign. When Christ returns, He will come riding on a white horse as a victorious king. The weed from the, to the left to the right, sheep and the goats, to bring forth His faithful servants to God's kingdom and to cast away to eternal perdition those who are not known by Him. Christ says, Now is the decision of this world. The ruler of this world will be cast out. Now how will the ruler be cast out? The answer is found in verse 32. When He is lifted up, when He is crucified, when He is cursed, like the serpent in John 3, as Moses lifted up the serpent that men might be saved, Christ also be lifted up. And when He is lifted up, He will cast out the ruler from certain people. He says, verse 32b, He will draw all people to Myself. Now that word draw is talking about an irresistible drawing of men to Christ Himself. It is what the theologians say, efficacious. It is irresistible. When Christ draws a man, He comes. 
when Christ calls the elect, they hear His voice and they respond. John 6.44 No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. Draw, that word is a picture of salvation. That Christ will save people. Now Christ says all people. Now this does not teach universalism. Christ is not saying that when He is crucified, everyone will be saved. The context is clear. It is the Passover feast. And there are Jews that are present in Jerusalem. And who are the ones that began this discussion, began this dialogue? Who are the ones that approach Christ? Why did John mention that the Greeks approached Christ? What does that matter, John? Just go into the dialogue. Give us the answer. Why do you mention that these were Greek men, not Jews? Because it is the, the identity of these men is pertinent to Christ's answer. By Christ saying, I will draw all people to myself. Meaning that He will draw people from all nations. Not just Jews. But from the Gentile nations. And all the Gentile nations. Christ promises here in verse 32 that He will save men from every nation, tribe, and tongue. Why? Because of God's glory, right? Jesus went to the cross for the glory of God the Father. And when He is lifted up, as He is giving His life for the glory of God, His purpose is so that the glory of God might spread through all people. That all nations might glorify God. That is the central theme of this whole passage, of this whole section. This is the big picture. Christ came and died and rose again, all for the glory of God. And how does He glorify God? He glorifies God by gathering together a joyful, countless people from all the peoples of the world that they might also glorify God's name. Does that make sense? Our Lord said, glorify your name. God said, I have glorified it. I will glorify glorify it again. And Jesus says, yes, I live and die for your glory. And when I am crucified, I will draw men from four corners of this world that your glory, your fame, your honor might spread to all people. Well, let me defend that from the Old and New Testament texts, other texts in the Scriptures. That from the beginning, God's desire was that all men be saved throughout the world. From the Old Testament, it is clear, all the way to the New, that our God is a missionary God. That His heart yearns to see all nations see and savor the beauty and glory of Christ. Psalm 96.3 Declare His glory among the nations, His marvelous deeds among all peoples. 
First <coughs> Chronicles 16.8 Give thanks to the Lord. Call on His name. Make known among the nations what He has done. Psalm 22.27 and 28 All the ends of the earth will remember and t- turn to the Lord. All the families of the nations will bow down before Him. Psalm 46.10 Be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. Psalm 67.3-4 When Sir and I got married, this was our, our psalm that we held on to. Our psalm, the psalm that we prayed as a family. The psalm says, May the peoples praise you, O God. May all the peoples praise you. May the nations be glad and sing for joy. The nations of the earth. This declaration is extended to the New Testament. In fact, Matthew 24:14 says that Christ will not return until this gospel is proclaimed to all nations. Did you guys hear that? Matthew 24:14, this gospel of the kingdom will be preached in the whole world. As a testimony to all ethnos, all nations, then the end will come. Christ will, will slow His return until the gospel is proclaimed into every tribe, every tongue. Because that's the heart of God. Mark 13.10 The gospel must first be preached to all nations. That's why Christ commissioned the disciples, Matthew 28.19 Go therefore and make disciples of all nations. Romans 1.5, Paul says, I have received grace and apostleship to call people from among all the nations to the obedience that comes from faith. Romans 15.20, Paul says, It has always been my ambition to preach the gospel where Christ was not known so that those who are not told about Him will see and those who have not heard will understand. This is the big picture. Christ died for the glory of God. God does all things for His own glory. Christ will lift up all, be lifted up that all men might know the glory of God. The Old and New Testament declare that God's intention was always for the salvation of all the world, all nations. So, the therefore. Let's go to the therefore. What is our purpose? What must be our dream? What must be our motivation? As we consider the heart of Christ, the heart of God, the statements of Scripture, our motivation must be to spread the knowledge of God's glory to all nations. Verse 32. This is what every Christian should dream about. This should be the hope and aspiration of all believers to give our lives for this mission. To give our lives to see men and women from all nations throughout the world gathered to worship and glorify our Lord. The missions is for the glory of God. Salvation of all nations glorifies God. If, one, if someone says, I desire 
to glorify God, but is not involved in missions. It's just mere words. It's mere external profession. Commitment to God's glory, passion for God's glory, means that he seeks others that they might glorify God. Piper said this, said it right, quote, missions is not the ultimate goal of the church. Missions is not the ultimate goal of the church. Missions is temporary. No more missions in heaven. Our goal is eternal. Giving glory to our God, giving glory to God is the ultimate goal. Therefore, passion for God's glory is the central motivation for world missions. Where passion for God is weak, where men and women are not captive to the vision of God's glory, it is clear that zeal for missions will be weak. Our foremost passion, our foremost commitment is for the glory of God. Well, let me just lay down my heart in terms of global missions. Now, my dream is verse 32. My aspiration and the leaders of Cornerstone, our ambition is that God's glory, God's fame might spread beyond Orange County, beyond the United States. I hope and I pray, it is our hope, it is our commitment, that within five years' time, that we will, fa- we will send to overseas missions three or four families will go together. Three or four families will be committed to plant a church overseas. I've said this before. There is not a church in America that I desire to pastor in. Um, you know, with the Expositors Institute and I was having dinner with some members last night. and I mean, I don't know a church that's better to their pastor than Cornerstone. Stern and I, we are so blessed. So blessed by all of you. There's not a church in this country that we would desire to minister in. We want to live and die cornerstone, except for one area. It's overseas missions. Sir and I have been talking about missions, and we've said, if no one will cornerstone, will go in five years, we'll go. You know, maybe Marcus can take over. I don't know, Jason. I don't know, whoever. You guys can take over. This job's not so hard. <laughs> it's, not, it's not difficult at all. We will go. It is important for Cornerstone. It is, it is required for our existence, for our commitment to God's glory that we send our people to missions. If we say we're committed to God's glory and yet all we do is pray, all we do is give money, all we do is give two weeks out of the year for short-term missions, then this church is just going to deteriorate and rot from within. It is important for our body to send our own members for a lifetime of missions. Let me just lay down for you four reasons why we must send our own missionaries. 
First of all, as I just said, it validates our passion for God's glory. It proves that our zeal is true. Our zeal for God's glory is true. That they are not just words on a web page. That they are not just uh, Christian lingo that we throw around during uh, our, our year-end uh, church reports. It's not just prayers that we offer up to God. It is proof that God's glory is our ultimate goal in our lives. If we profess with the loudest voice about our love for God and our love for God's glory, yet if we do not send our own people to the front lines of missions, we must question whether we truly live for the glory of God. Second reason why it's important that we send our own missionaries, it spurs and strengthens us who stay behind to live with a wartime mentality. It spurs and strengthens the church that is left behind to live with a wartime mentality. It will have a tremendous purifying influence on Cornerstone when we send our own members. Because we live too easily here in Orange County. We live too comfortably. The week that Marcus and I were in Kazakhstan sleeping on the floor eating foreign foods, taking cold showers, you know, laboring away. That very week, Huey was in Hawaii, Maui, Hawaii, at a medical conference. That same exact week. And he left the day after we left, and he came back the day, we, day after we came back. And he was telling me, yeah, he felt kind of uneasy, you know, lapping it up in Maui, <laughs> you know, soaking up the sun, and the beaches of Hawaii, when he knew that we were toiling away in Kazakhstan. I said, you better have been uneasy. <laughs> you better have been just kind of disturbed little bit praying for us. Hey, brothers and sisters, it's not, it's not wrong to go to Hawaii. It's not at all. Not wrong to go to Europe and stay in five-star hotels. But our hearts as believers who live for eternity... Our hearts should be a little uneasy. No, our hearts should be very uneasy because we have hope in Christ. Our dream is for Christ's glory. And having our own members fighting for life and death in the front lines of the gospel will help Cornerstone live more uneasily, right? It'll be a great reminder to us that we are pilgrims. I don't know about you, but I want that kind of accountability. I want to be irritated. I want to be made uneasy in my life, with my lifestyle, because members of our own church are suffering for the gospel abroad. When I buy something frivolous, I want to think twice because I got a phone call from one of you day before about how people are dying and en masse without hope of the gospel and that believers are struggling and they're going without what they need because there's lack of funds, lack of finances and Christians will not cheat or steal so Christians are suffering and because I got that phone call I heard from our members when I go to buy something frivolous when I'm tempted to live in luxury and comfort 
My heart is irritated. My heart is bothered. I need that accountability. I want that accountability. I believe Cornerstone does as well. And when we're in Kazakhstan, two times this happened. At 10 p.m., someone knocked at the gate of the church. Bajan and his mom, Krilla, immediately started packing up food. What's going on? And he says, there's a boy, 12 years old. He's a runaway. He's running away from the police as well. And he comes by once in a while to beg for food. I try to get him to go to the police, to get official help, but he refuses. Now, it's a disturbing sight to see a 12-year-old boy living in the streets. He was living in a gutter somewhere. But Marcus and I, we wanted to see him because we wanted to be irritated. We wanted to see his eyes. We went out there and we saw him. 12-year-old boy. That's good for my heart. That's good for my soul as I live in Orange County, California. I think it would be good for Cornerstone as well. If we send our own members, and they report to us the warfare that is going on, the wartime mentality, they're living in the front lines. It'll be good for us. Thirdly, the spiritual life and vitality of our church depends on it. The spiritual life and the vitality of our church depend on it. This is so clear. The church will not rise above her pastors, her leaders. The church will not rise above her pastors, her leaders. The zeal of the church for the glory of God will not surpass the zeal the leaders have for the glory of God. At the point we say, I love God, but not enough to leave my family. Not enough to leave my job, leave my house, leave my friends. That point is the limit of the church's passion for Christ. From that point on, the church's spiritual life will begin to deteriorate. When leaders say, okay, that's enough. I can't give up my comforts. I can't give up my American dream. And that's the height of the church. And then slowly from that moment on, the church will become an inward-focused church. No longer fixated on the beauty of Christ. The cornerstone will, from that point on, will forever be mired in the materialistic, man-centered, drama-filled life that is so common in so many churches today. Comfort and ease, affluence and prosperity, safety and freedom. The life of a believer and the life of a church always causes complacency, always causes indifference in the church. Gary and I were talking this week, and we're talking about how church is going so well. We're like, what trial will come to us? When's the shoe going to drop? What, what will hit us and cause us to struggle? Well, by my study, I conclude um, that our trial will come not with a bang, but with a whimper. The rotting of the church here at Cornerstone will start, will begin slowly, subtly, if and when we decide not to send our own members, our own leaders, our own pastors to life-term missions overseas. 
And finally, sending our own people to missions declares the world by doctrine and by life that God is our greatest treasure. It will declare to the world by doctrine, more importantly, by life, that we love God more than sin. We love God more than, more than comforts. It re- reveals to the world by our lives the preciousness of our Lord Jesus Christ. We measure the worth of a treasure by what we will give for it. If we, will, if we give little for something, it reveals that we do not truly treasure the object. But if we give everything for the object, it tells the world the true value of the object. Pat Tillman gave his life because he loved this country. How much more do we cherish and treasure Christ? He gave up a job that pays $3.6 million a year. Will believers give up a job that pays 40000 a year, 50000 a year? Where are the Christian Pat Tillmans? Where are the young radicals for Christ who would the joy set before Him follow Christ to the ends of the world? If your aim is to glorify Christ, you will lay down your life to make people from all nations eternally happy in God. We join the leaders of Cornerstone in, in praying that God will raise up men and women from Cornerstone, Pat Tillman, like Adoniram Judson, Henry Martin, David Livingstone, William Carey, Jim Elliott, that God will raise up such men and women from our body that we might glorify Him and have our dreams realized dream of seeing John 12:32 come to pass come to fruition in our lives our great god and king it is our confession that we love you too little that the bride and attractive things of this world have led us astray. Our hearts are prone to wander from our chief love. Prone to wander towards loving these things and loving ourselves too much. Lord, help us to see the ultimate end of all things. Help us to see the ultimate end of our lives and then to live our lives backwards knowing that we live for You. Knowing that our eternal home is in heaven, knowing, Lord, that we will stand before you one day. May that affect and influence our joy today, our passion and our delight. Lord, going to life-term missions is too lofty for all of us. It's too lofty a thought. It's too noble for mere Christians as us. Help us, Lord, in, in our lives, in our way to, to, to walk the road of Calvary, to, to Monday morning at work, Tuesday afternoons with friends, 
to make decisions so that men and women throughout all nations might know you and enjoy you. Help us, Lord, to practically take steps to make this our dream and our highest aspiration. Lord, we pray that you would give grace to this young church. Lord, give us much favor. Shine your face upon Cornerstone. Lord, may we not waste our lives individually and as a church. May the world clearly see how much we cherish and love you. In the name of Jesus we pray. Amen.